is Matthew 22, 34 through 46, and it is on page 777. That's a pretty cool number. <laughs> um, so join me um, by standing and reading God's word. I'll read it, and you can follow along in the Bibles. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, this is Jesus, you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Now, Jared, would you come up and I'll pray for you and for us. Um, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we get to gather here. Thank you for um, this building. Um, thank you for the temple and staff that have um, allowed us to be here this morning. Would you bless them? Um, would you bless our gathering? Open up our ears, Spirit. Uh, fill us um, with your voice, with your conviction. Would we um, not let these words uh, just fall on deaf ears today? Would you... Um, just help us uh, come underneath you and live like you lived, do what you did, um, and love people the way you love people. That is a work that only you can do through us, Jesus, so please help us. Inspire us through your word. I, I pray for Jared that um, be with him, give him clarity of mind, uh, give him your word, spirit, um, hide him, protect him. Um, we thank you, Jesus. Be glorified. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Whitney. Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. This uh, Matthew's gospel is pretty intense right about now uh, in this phase of his gospel. The whole thing can be. Um, but this morning, we're, we're going to be talking about, the title of the sermon is The God First Life That Prioritizes relationships. As Jesus is asked, what is this great commandment? He gives the great commandment, but he's also doing some more work with the Pharisees and these religious rulers about what the great commandment is. And so I've just got a couple of points for us this morning. The first one is loving your neighbor is a way to test your love of God. This is a practical means. Loving our neighbor is a way, not the only way, but it is a way to test your love of God. And then the second point is pretty simple, straight out of the text. Jesus is the only one to perfectly love God and love his neighbor. And so my hope this morning is that we would see Jesus as he is and that our hearts would enlarge some for him and for his power and for his supremacy and for who he, who he is to us, who he is 
to the world. Now, th- these last few weeks in Matthew's gospel, they've enlarged my own appreciation for Jesus's human reality. Matthew takes a full eight chapters at the end to take us into the last seven days of Jesus's life. And what we see in these closing chapters, we've really seen it throughout, but it's beginning to intensify and heat up for him. Jesus is constantly being tempted and he's being tried by these religious leaders, the power brokers of his day. And I just, I want to ask, maybe this is a question to just have circulating in your own heart and mind. Have you grown as you read through Matthew's gospel with us, as you listen in on the teaching, have you grown in your own appreciation for the real Jesus? Are you growing as you're looking at the, at, at the, at the revealed word of God, the life of Christ, are you growing in your own appreciation for the real Jesus? Last week, these religious rulers and some politicians along with them, named the Herodians, they conspired to set yet another trap in order to discredit and in order to destroy, ultimately, Jesus. That was their intent. Matthew told us from the opening pages of his gospel that their heart was bent on destroying him. And then, so they're coming to Jesus, these Pharisees and Herodians trying to trap him. And then another group rolls right in on their heels, this group called the Sadducees, who are wealthy religious leaders. They denied that there was a resurrection of the dead, and they were trying to trap Jesus and do the same. And so as we pick up this morning where Whitney read from in verse 34, when these Pharisees, they hear that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, they got together again. So it's still Tuesday of Holy Week in this portion of Scripture, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday is the crucifixion. It is Good Friday. These religious leaders, they get word that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. It probably pleased them some because their own hearts were pretty, pretty dark, and they were opponents of the Sadducees. And so these Pharisees, they regroup for another attack on Jesus' dignity, another attack on his authority, another attack on his identity. And if you've got your eyes open and if you're willing to see it, what we're seeing through these encounters is that it is very possible for a person's head to be full of the scriptures, while their hearts and hands are simultaneously fixed on doing evil to their neighbor. To be divided, to have what comes out of our mouth, what's stored in our head, be contrary to our actual way of life and the intent of our heart, which should sober every one of us. It sobers me. It should cause us really to look at ourselves, to with this Psalm 139 kind of a look. It's, it's, it's actually a guided look at ourselves. Lord, search me. Search my heart. Reveal what's going on. Help me to see my blind spots. Help me to see ways that grieve you, Lord, that I'm living, that I'm thinking, that I'm speaking, my attitudes. Help me to see ways that grieve you and then shepherd me in a way that pleases you, that leads me to life, that leads me to full-orbed, wholehearted worship of you, that reforms my life and, and, and repatterns, recreates my life, renews my life after you, Lord. 
Psalm 139 is such an essential psalm, verses 23 and 24, to just anchor in your mind and to pray continually, especially when you don't know everything that's going on inside you, but you just know you're dealing with some stuff, some stuff's coming out of you, you don't know what to do with it. Psalm 139 is such a comfort and a help. Back to Matthew's gospel in verses 35 and 36, one of these Pharisees, they send this one of their best to Jesus. He's a lawyer. He's a, in, in other words, he's a scholar uh, of their people. Um, scribe is another way to describe their, their lawyers. These are the seminarians. These are the ones who have devoted their entire lives to parsing the scriptures, the language, to, to, um, to teasing out the nuance in these Old Testament texts. So they're incredibly good with technicalities. They're good with logic. They're good with argument. And this lawyer comes to Jesus, we see, in order to, Matthew's words are in order to test him. That word is tempt. That word can be translated into the English readily, tempt. He's there to goad Jesus into a trap in order to destroy him. There's a point to this tempting. And he says, which is the great, which, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Which is a great question. It's actually a question about value. It's a question that asks, what does God value? What's the greatest commandment? The way that the Pharisees saw the law, they had actually 613 laws that governed their religious and civic life together, and and they, they determined these laws. All of them were valid, but they would look at them, the weightier matters and the lesser matters. And so they're asking, what's the weightiest law? What's the big one? Which is the first question for you and I to be concerned with also daily. This kind of question, what is the great commandment? What do you want of me? The first and best, Lord. This kind of question, when asked on the regular for us, will lead a person to a life of abundance. It'll lead us into a life lived in relationship with God. It's the essence that we read last week in verse 21 of render to God what is God's. The Pharisees came trying to test Jesus Should we pay this Roman tax? Jesus asked them for a coin. They give him the coin. He says, whose name is, whose likeness is on this coin? They said, it's Caesar's. Well, then give the tax to Caesar because his face and image is on your money. And then he said, well, render to God what is God's. And the idea there is that the image of God is stamped on every single person. So all of us are created by him. His image is in and upon us. Therefore, render to God what is God's, which is our entire life. So if you and I want to know what God's first and regular concern for us is, it's this, that you love him with your whole being, with all of your faculties, and that you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus will add. Now, just a moment for us. God knows how hard, how impossible this is for us in our fallen condition. He knows. He is compassion. He is filled with compassion for our predicament. But he never lowers the standard. Because for God to lower the standard is to give his glory over to inglorious things. No, no, no. I guess you don't have to love me with all of who you are. Just love me with part of who you are, and then I'll be okay with that. God never settles for a second best. His standard is to reserve glory for 
himself. Why? Because he is the most glorious thing in all of existence ever. And so to give that glory to something lesser is to give his glory over to something that is inglorious when compared with him. It's to give us over to things that can never actually satisfy us if he were to give us over to a lesser love and to say, okay, you don't have to love me first. We're created from the beginning to love God and to love one another. We are created for a God-first life that prioritizes relationships. That's what we're created for. So this Pharisee, he comes and he says, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love God. And in verses 37 through 40, Jesus answers with something called the Shema. The Hebrew word for hear or listen is the word Shema. And this great commandment that Jesus quotes back to them. So their question really to him is, Jesus, are you orthodox? They're trying to figure out, are you in line with us? Even on the the greatest things, they're trying to catch him now with an obvious thing. And the great commandment is embedded in the hearts and in the minds of the Israelites. Uh, This Shema comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where where Moses... uh, gives this command through the Lord, and he says, hear, that's the word Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Devout Jews from that time forward would would recite this Shema two times a day, once in the morning, once at night. Their whole life is encapsulated. This thing is in this command of God to love him first, which is also the first of the Ten Commandments. It's in their view, and they're reciting it out of their mouths twice a day, morning and evening. So it's the big E on the eye chart of their worship, period. The idea in this standard from the beginning, this is the great commandment, it's not the great suggestion, is that the whole man, the whole woman would be fully devoted to God. And it's the kind of command that does business with this belief that a person's bloodlust and their love for Yahweh could possibly or peaceably live together within them. It's the kind of command that does business with our own fickle American Christianity that says that uh, both your greed and your Jesus can peaceably live within you, or that our lust and our sexual immorality and King Jesus can coexist peaceably within us, and any other thing that dishonors God, the Shema, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, might, or mind, the Shema is about deep loyalty. The deepest loyalty, the first loyalty. It's not concerned with superficial loyalty. And then Jesus does something surprising because it hadn't been done so clearly by any rabbis in Israel. He quotes a second great commandment from Leviticus, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Both the first commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself were commonly referenced in rabbinical writings, but they were always done so separately. No Jewish writings have the two of them sandwiched together like this, part A, part B. So Jesus asserts then that there is a a second commandment that is glued to the first. It's gapless. There's no space between them. In verse 40, Jesus says, on these commandments depend or hang 
all the law and prophets. This language of law and prophets is shorthand for their entire Hebrew Bible. Genesis through Malachi, though that's not the way they ordered the Hebrew Bible. But all the books are consistent that we have in our Bible that they had in their Hebrew canon as well. There's something for us to see in Jesus' statement. When Jesus says that, that everything depends on this first and second commandment, he's not saying that they dispense with the other commandments. So like I said earlier, they agreed upon commandments in Israel's law totaled about 613 different commandments that were concerned with worship and civil law and our personal relationships and dietary regulations that governed the entire life of Israel. And Jesus was not subtracting 611 and just saying, you only need to worry about the two because this word depend means that the, the remaining 611, they hang on that first two. Literally, loving God and loving your neighbor is a peg that all of our effort to be godly and to please God and to follow through in obedience to what he has asked of his people Everything hangs on those two, just as if they were a hook. By attaching these two com commands together, um, Jesus was showing you and I a way to test our love of God. Here's a question. How well do I love my fellow man? Not just the ones that I like. Not just the ones that are easy for me. Not just the ones that I want to be close to. But how well do I love my fellow man, the people that are actually around me, the people that are in my proximity? As we've seen in Matthew, in chapter 5, neighbor is not just the people who are like us. Neighbor is not just the people who we're closest to, but it means everyone in our proximity, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, even your enemies even our enemies. Listen to this quote from a scholar named Michael Green. I'll let you know, uh, I'll have just a touch of commentary in his, in, in his quote, but I'll let you know when I'm done with his quote. He starts, he says, this summary of love God and love your neighbor is exceedingly powerful and it's disturbing because it takes the questioner, what is the greatest law, from the area of achievement, or what is the greatest command, from this area of what can I achieve, which he might conceivably fulfill, to actually Jesus' answer brings him to that of attitude where nobody can boast fulfillment. For people who, like this expert of the law, they were people who are strong on ethics but weak on relationships, this strong relational teaching was a revealing mirror of the heart. Because it begins to show us that no one has ever loved God with his whole being. It shows us that nobody has ever loved her neighbor as herself. And so nobody can possibly merit eternal life, which once again, Michael Green is still speaking here, it brings us back to grace. This brings us back to grace. If we are to have any place in the kingdom of God, it will be due to the unmerited grace of God for sinners who could never make it by themselves. What a marvelous definition of true religion this is, he writes. If there is real love for God, there will inevitably be real love for neighbor. 
God is, God's overflowing love is infectious. The criterion of whether love for God is real or whether or not it is real, the criterion of whether love for God is real is whether or not it is reflected in our relationships with others, end quote. Here's the implication for these Pharisees who had gathered here to ensnare their enemy, Jesus. He's their neighbor. You see that? He is their neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second command, and he is their enemy, but he is their neighbor. And so, therefore, they're failing the second commandment, which is also a violation of the first commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. So if all of the other 611 commandments that trickle down that are hanging on those first two, if you've broken that first peg of commandments one and two, it means that you're breaking the entire scriptural code. You've broken the peg that everything else hangs on. What are we doing if we're not attending to those first two commandments? Again, these Pharisees, they're here and they're hating and they're trying to ensnare their neighbor Jesus and see the contrast. Here Jesus is radically loving his enemies and trying to unsnare them. That's why he's making himself available to them. He's not making himself available to them to best them and to say, aha, did you see what I did? Do you see how hard they fell? That's not his motive. In all of the pressure that Jesus must be feeling, there's crowds of people around him trying to test him, and he's one man in his humanity standing on his own. He doesn't go inward. He doesn't curve in on himself, but instead he gives himself away in love. His love is not fragile. His love is not soft. It's this direct and confrontational love that is not about just winning an argument and destroying a person. His love is actually about winning the argument and winning the person because it's a battle for truth that has the power to set the undeserving free. And so he stands there in confidence and in courage, unwilling to bend and he's loving God with everything in him by loving his neighbors as himself. It's incredible to see a man like this, to see someone who has walked among us like this. We should see that Jesus is the only one to truly love God and to love his neighbor perfectly, which is the second point here. Jesus is the only one to perfectly love God and perfectly love his neighbor. In verse 41, we read that while these Pharisees were gathered there together, Jesus brings a question of his own to test them. That's what he's doing with this question. He's testing them. But he's not testing them to destroy them, but to turn them around for their good. He's confronting them that they might repent. Remember, that's the first and last word of his ministry. It's repent. It's change your mind about who God is. We've got to see this kind of confrontation here as Jesus begins to put them on the ropes as another act of love and another move of mercy on Jesus' part. I just love him. 
I want to continue to grow into his likeness, but what I see on the pages is such a massive gap between me and him. I hope we can see that. And I hope our eyes are lifted up at the real Jesus who is magnificent. And I hope it humbles us into the dirt so that we might turn to him in need because we all go, I can't keep the commandment. Who will intercede for me? Who will keep the commandment for me? Because in my strength, I don't have it. I want it, but I don't have it. Jesus' question is about their understanding of the Messiah. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to Jesus, you're new to church, Jewish, Jewish history, the Messiah is a really big deal. Remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's the Greek word. Christ is this Greek word Christos, which means Messiah. Verse 42, he, Jesus said, hey guys, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The Jews of Jesus' day had these big expectations about the Messiah. They're on the lookout for this, this, this descendant from King David's line who would come to them, a, a man, a warrior kind of king who would throw off the shackles of Roman oppression and restore their nation to its former glory. We got a little bit of this going on in our political system right now. I'm just going to alert you to that. We're looking at humans to restore things to their former glory. And if we get too deep in that and too devoted to that individual and to that thing that we need the former glory to be restored and we begin to miss and dishonor God in the way that we're operating around our neighbors and in our community and the people around us and pushing aside truth so that we can get power, we are grieving our king. We need to keep our heads. Am I saying don't engage? Not at all. I'm saying engage as a Christian first and an American second. Please. We're coming into this season. It's about to get nasty. Are we going to be a part of the nasty? Or are we going to be a part of an effort to heal? Standing for truth, not bending, not backing away, but refusing to try to destroy the people around us own the libs or own the conservatives. or That is grievous to God. That's the kind of attitude that loving God first does business with and reorders and reorients. Rant over, back to the text. In, in, in King David's day, Israel was a superpower in the, in the region. In their current day, in the first century, Israel is this subjugated, powerless shadow of days gone by. They're a shell of themselves. And God gave Israel early on a promise that a descendant from David, his own, from his own lineage, about a thousand years before Jesus, um, he gave Israel this promise that a descendant of David would rescue them, would be this messianic figure. Israel saw this individual as a powerful person, a kind of warrior king like David, who would protect and prosper and propel Israel back to glory, which would glorify God in their view. If we can restore our former, former glory, then and the nations look at us and the hand of God is upon us, and then people will glorify God. And so the Messiah would certainly 
do something like this, he would restore a people, but in a way that didn't just affect the Jewish nation, but it affected humanity, wrapped the Gentiles in. And it would be against a greater enemy than Rome. It would be against the enemy of our souls, death and Satan and hell, the enemies of God. These Jewish leaders, they answer that this Messiah is the son of David. Now, Keep in view that Matthew has told us something like this in chapter 21 already that Trevor taught through a few weeks ago in this triumphal entry. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. This is just Sunday. It's Tuesday of Holy Week where we're at right now in the text. Just two days ago, he entered into Jerusalem and these crowds, not small crowds, big crowds gaining a lot of attention in the capital city, Jerusalem, were surrounding Jesus and they were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or Adonai. Hosanna in the highest. These crowds saw Jesus as Messiah, as this one who was coming down the line, given to them by God. And so the cries of Hosanna and this language of son of David, it's all messianic language that's coming from the people, coming from the ordinary people. And Hosanna, it means save or save us, please. And son of David is this descendant of David. And so the idea that a crowd might shout this in Jesus' direction, it probably feels foreign to us, but it was not new and it was not odd to them. They knew exactly what they were saying and they knew exactly what they were hoping for because this idea of Messiah was on everyone's minds in the first century. Some wild things were happening in their day. This guy named John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, a famous prophet in their day, at a time when no prophet had spoken, thus says the Lord, to the people of Israel for 400 years. And now all of a sudden there is a prophetic kind of Elijah-like figure like calling people out to the wilderness to be baptized for repentance. He's calling these people back. He's preparing the path of the Lord. And ironically, or not, as John was baptizing and calling Israel to repentance, Jesus arrives in the public square. So now all of a sudden we have these two Old Testament-like figures or, or prophetic figures. Jesus arrives in the public square and he's doing even wilder things than John the Baptist is doing. He's healing people. He's saying your sins are forgiven to people. People are just jostling to get to him and to get around him. He's teaching with stunning authority and the people see it and feel it. He's casting out demons. He's calling people to life and he's in the crosshairs of Israel's religious leaders. And so conflict abounds and the temperature rises and these, this general public in Jerusalem and the folks out in the rural towns are genuinely looking at this phenomenal human, Jesus of Nazareth, as if he could be the one who Yahweh had sent to fulfill their prophecy and throw off the yoke of Roman occupation. So for Jesus to ask these leading biblical scholars a question about the Messiah in that era would be like asking a PhD a question that a first grader could handle. 
And they answer him and they say, well, the son, who, who is the Messiah's son? Or who's the, the, the Messiah is the son of whom? And they say, the son of David. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 110 or on your apps. I'll cue it up in a moment. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament about, this, about Jesus because the authors of our New Testaments, they knew its wonder. And so Jesus then, he, he says to them, he says, in verses 30, 43 through 45, he says, Jesus, Jesus says, how is it that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so they, they accepted Psalm 110 as scripture, spoken by David, this prophet and king of Israel, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how is it then that he calls his own son his Lord? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, what king submits to his son? He might pass on the crown, but it's because the king is dying. In Jewish thought, the son was never greater than the father. Never. The descendant would always be a junior to the elder. And so there's something profound that is embedded in Psalm 110, verse 1, that I want you to see and that we need to see, and you need to see it in your Old Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Notice the two ways that the word Lord is written in Psalm 110, verse 1. The first one is in all caps, and the second one is just capital L in sentence case. So we need to ask the question, why is it rendered differently? What's going on? Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it's referring to the personal sacred name of God, which is Yahweh, which means I am. And this name, this personal name of God comes from Moses' experience with God in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encountered the burning bush. This is about 1,300 years before Jesus was born in the flesh. And at this time, when Moses encountered God in this burning bush, God said that he would send Moses to Pharaoh, this leader of the Egyptians who had enslaved the Israelites. And Moses was unsure how all of this is going to go because he had no leadership authority even in Israel, not to mention Egypt. So Moses is like, I know the first step. I got to go to the Israelites and kind of rally them. And then I got to go to Pharaoh. And how is this all going to go? Because Moses knew that the people would reject him if he rolled in on his own authority. And so Moses asked this of Yahweh in the burning bush episode in Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel... And if I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Who is he? Who are you coming representing? What am I going to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Say that to them. And then he said, this is my name forever. I am Yahweh. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Now we're going to do some gymnastics here, but follow me. You can track. Are you with me? Right. Back to Psalm 110. We see that the Lord, Yahweh, says something to a different Lord. He's saying, he's talking to somebody. The Lord says to David's Lord. The second Lord is this Hebrew word, Adonai, and it's a title that means sovereign one. And Adonai is the most significant title for God used in the entire Hebrew Bible in your Old Testament. It's used over 700 times to describe God in the Old Testament. God is the sovereign one. That's the idea. Now, in, if you're in Psalms, go to Psalm 8, 8 verse 1. Real quick, if you can, you can track with me verbally, though. In Psalm 8.1, we see these two words, the all-caps Lord and the sentence case Lord. We see them together again, but this time it's just referring to God. Whitney read it for us in our call to worship this morning. The psalm reads like this, O Lord, all caps, our Lord, sentence case, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, what the writer is saying is, O Yahweh, our sovereign one. Go back to Psalm 110. I told you you're going to do some Bible gymnastics. In Psalm 110, God is speaking to the sovereign one. Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. And he's not talking out loud to himself. He's talking to someone else who is the sovereign one, who is God. How do we know? Because look at what Yahweh tells the sovereign one to do. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It would be absurd if I told myself to take a seat beside myself. Right? Who's God speaking to, though, here? He's speaking to David's son. Remember, how is it that Dave inspired by the David, I'm sorry, I'm not taking him that casually. How is it that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to David, to my Lord? See, God is speaking, Yahweh is speaking to this descendant of David. And if the Messiah is from David's line, then the Messiah is David's son. But if David is also calling the Messiah his own Lord, how can he be his son? Because the descendant of David would never be greater than David. Now the Pharisees are in a conundrum. Jesus is arguing that the Messiah is more than they expect. That's the point. The Messiah is far more than they have bet on. He is beyond their understanding. Remember, the issue isn't with the psalm. It's not with David who wrote the psalm. David was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he penned it. The issue was actually with their interpretation. It was with their understanding. And now Jesus is teaching them and teaching with stunning authority. You see, the son of David is not actually an adequate title for Jesus or for the Messiah because the Messiah is Jesus and Jesus is the son of God who is the son of David. 
And as Matthew is writing this, he's postscript. Jesus has already gone to the cross, ascended to the Father. And now Matthew is reaching back and he's, he's writing history for Jewish Christians. And Matthew understands that Jesus, even now, even as he's writing, even as we're listening, Jesus is ex- exalted at the right hand of the Father. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The PhDs were stumped on a first grade question, and here is the tragedy. They didn't dare to ask Jesus another question. Now, I'm just going to be really blunt. I simultaneously hate the Pharisees. When I read Scripture, I get ticked. And you could use other words for that too. But my heart also aches for them. I'm this mixed bag. Why are you doing this? Why won't you listen? Because they didn't have to walk away in unbelief. But they chose what they most wanted. And they dishonored Yahweh and Adonai by not loving them by not loving God with their heart, soul, and mind, they rejected their neighbor, the son of David, son of God. And they were about to scream out in just two days for his crucifixion. And so they have, what we see on the pages of Matthew right here is that these Pharisees have willfully turned away from the one who came to reconcile them with God. And now we're going to see in chapter 23 that woe, has come to them. Here's where it lands for us. May it never be said of you or of I that we turned away and that we walked away from Jesus or that we held a relaxed and superficial attitude toward loving him and carrying out his commands loving our neighbors. God's will for us is that we love him wholeheartedly and that we love our neighbors fully. And so as we begin to reflect and prepare for communion, I want you, I would ask you, church, to reflect, on, reflect for yourself on your own tendency to fill your head with Bible knowledge while keeping your heart distant from God and distant from those that he is asking you to love and to show up for. There's a lot of teaching in this passage. There's a lot of application in this passage. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit and I'm trusting you that he can help us understand where this lands for us. But commandment one and commandment two are non-negotiables. I believe it was Martin Luther who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do whatever you want. Because if we're loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can do whatever we want because the will of God and the love of God is freely flowing through us and whatever we want is what he wants. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
Our Father who is holy, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Where does this teaching land for the individuals in the room? Would you help us to determine how to respond and who to respond to? Would you help us to know what to do? How to direct more and more of our whole heart to you, our mind to you, our strength to you, and our souls to you. Answer our prayers, please. In Jesus' name, amen.